Hey everybody, welcome to the Locals Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Michael Wesch. Wesch is an associate professor of cultural anthropology at Kansas State University. Uh, Wesch's work also includes uh, media ecology and the emerging field of digital ethnography, where he studies the effect of new media on human interaction. We talk a lot of, about his early studies, field studies in Papua New Guinea, and uh, there's some great stories that he talks about. And uh, we also talk about his um, website and class online called Anth 101, which really it's it's a great class for anyone to take or anyone any that's interested in anthropology you should get on anth101.com and enroll in the class and, and take the 10 challenges that he has and it's really kind of a new way of of teaching um, i think dr wesh is at the forefront of of innovation of teaching at, especially at the college level and so uh, i'll let him kind of go into it in the podcast i don't want to ruin it but um with no further ado dr wesh so it like let's just start. I, I want to be as I like to be as informal and just have a conversation, just like anybody mm-hmm. would, just like we were just having. But yeah. you know, if, if someone were to ask you like, "Hey, what do you do for a living?" What would you What would you <laughs> tell them? Lord, I, mean, I try to inspire young people to find their passion, and then just help them every step of the way that I can. Uh, and I think like that leads to like this really big. I mean, it leads to all the big questions. So I guess what I do for a living is actually contemplate like all the big questions of life. And I try to come up with reasonable answers that I can then help students out with, you know? Yeah. It's, it's not easy. I know you're doing kind of the same thing. And, and I think as, as a football coach, you know, you know that that's, you know, as much about teaching them life lessons as it is about winning on the football field. For sure. You know? And I think that's kind of what I like about being here at K-State is that there's kind of this ethos all the way from Snyder to the classroom, you know, like there's more going on here than just preparing you to be an engineer or to be a doctor or to be a football player. You know, we're trying to, life is complicated. The world is more complicated than ever. And we're trying to help give you some guidance through that. For sure. If someone were like to call you an anthropologist and they were like, well, what is an anthropologist? <laughs> yeah. Because you know, for me, right. growing up as a kid, like a little kid, you know, if I would have heard the word anthropologist, I'd think Indiana Jones or something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. So what would you, what would you say anthropology is? And so, yes, yeah, so anthropology is the study of all humans in all times and all places. Um, what that means is that, you know, we're trying to understand the whole human story uh, where we've been and where we're going. Uh, we're trying to understand big questions like uh, who are we as human beings? Uh, what are what are the limits of being human? What are the potentials of being human? What uh, are we going to make it as a species? You know, like projecting out a hundred years, like do we make it or do we have to make some changes? These are all like the big questions that we're asking. What led you down that path? I mean, what, what were that, that light bulb moment where you're yeah. like, man, this is something I'm passionate about? I, I sort of stumbled into it because like everybody, you know, you have lots of stuff going on in your life. And, and it's those, it's a lot of times it's those, that, that personal journey that leads you in different directions. And it, it almost feels accidental by the time you're where you're going. So I'd say, you know, the first breaking point for me was, I mean, I, I thought I had my life completely figured out when I was 18 years old. I had a great girlfriend, 
I was going to go be a business major and run a business and, like, and be like the money earner for the household, you know, and that was that. And then she broke up with me a year later and I was in an anthropology class at the time and I would, they were talking about these people all over the world and I thought, gosh, I'd just love to disappear from here right now <laughs> and i really like to just go to one of these places and see what life is like there. And then uh, in the midst of all that, I, I decided that I didn't really want to run a business. I mean, the money sounded good, but it wasn't really my passion. And that my real passion was teaching, for one, and the second one was telling stories and maybe writing a book or something. I was like, gosh, I haven't really done anything. I grew up in a small town. There's nothing to write about. So then I started thinking about really going abroad uh, to someplace interesting. And I had my heart set on New Guinea. And the only way to get to New Guinea that I could see, because it's one, expensive, and two, hard to get a visa. <clears throat> and three, if you really want to stay there a long time, you have to get a research visa. You can't go on a tourist visa. And so I, I then decided to go to grad school, not with the idea of becoming a professor, but actually with the idea of writing a book. <laughs> and I was just gonna like go to grad school, get a research visa, go to New Guinea, and that was the plan. Uh, in the midst of all that, I just really fell in love with the teaching side of things, and uh, the path forward was to be an anthropology teacher. So nice. that's how that happened. Just a bunch of accidents, really. And so, how was that experience? And I watched some videos of yeah of you dancing and Papua <laughs> New Guinea and, and some other interesting things. You know that yeah. that had to be a culture shock to the extreme, especially yeah. you know, coming from a small town. Certainly, culture shock, and also just. Uh, I mean, to give you a sense of how powerful that experience was, and maybe you probably have the same sort of experience where when you travel, you have these peak experiences, really, in your life that, that change you. And I, just to give you some sense of how powerful that was, sometimes I'll just, like even this morning when I was going for a run, I just felt like a certain breeze on my cheek with a certain amount of sweat. You know, I just immediately locked into New Guinea memories because, you know, in New Guinea I'd wake up and it's just a little too hot <laughs> and you get this little cool breeze and, and I would feel that on my cheek and I just remembered like that's that feeling of being in New Guinea and you have like this rush of memories come back. So that's when you know you have like this peak experience, right? Like you're just, I don't know, the smell of mangoes like takes me back to Vietnam, you know, like it's these little things that, uh, that connect you back to these peak experiences. So, you know, gosh, I mean, I wish I could just say that it was a joyful experience from the beginning, but I think all peak experiences and, and a lot of travel experiences that, uh, you know, are actually quite uh, traumatic at first, <laughs> you know, and it's this weird thing because I actually wish that upon all my students you know i want them to travel i want them to push themselves i want them to get uncomfortable because i know on the other side of that is a different person and it's the person that they want to be you know so how did that when you came back from papua new guinea i mean what what did you what did you recognize as a change in and how you were well new guinea was turned out to be this tremendous gift in that i was there for you know off and on for eight years for a total of two years but uh, it was right at the time when social media was taking off, and I think it was a great gift to 
be taken out of all technology and living in a little village with no electricity, no running water, no connection to the outside world. And, and knowing what kinds of concerns occupy your mind in that situation. Uh, the stories of 200 people became my entire life. And, the, and my concern was always for them and only for them. Uh, I didn't know what was going on in the world and didn't really care, but I cared a lot about, you know, my friend, you know, down the valley and his health, you know. And there's something really special about that sort of just raw humanness, just caring about these really essential human things with people who are not, you know, they're not doctors, lawyers, superstars, or anything. They're gardeners in the middle of New Guinea. Uh, the only way their memory will be preserved in the global memory will be through any book that I write, you know. But there's something really special about that and centering about that. So then when I came back and, you know, Facebook was kind of getting launched and all this, it's just, you know, just the chaos and craziness of the last 15 years. Uh, I think there's, it's nice to have like this space that I can go back to and, and remember that there is something like, I don't know, something about who we are as humans that uh, we, we can actually live in a little village together despite our differences and, and all get along. And I think about that all the time. I, if I'm in a political argument with somebody, with somebody, I just like kind of pause and I say, you know, if it was just me and you in a village of 200, we would be like brothers. Yeah, <laughs> you know, absolutely. Like, despite our Put our differences away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So do you get, do you keep in contact with them? Yeah, to some extent. It's hard because yeah. there's really no, um, there is no connection back to the village. Sometimes somebody will come into town, like into town, I mean, it's like a seven day trek or so. Yeah. Or they can, if they're lucky, they can uh, hitch a ride on, on a plane or something. Um, so every once in a while somebody will like reach out through Facebook of all things, you know, and, and I'll just get a little glimpse into what's happening in the village. But other than that, uh, not a lot of contact, you know, so maybe twice a year or something, I'll get a little glimpse. Uh, but we're, we're going to planning on going back like in probably like, uh, beginning of 2020, I think we're going to go back. So. so I know you have two young children, right? Three. Three. Okay. Yeah. And how old are they? Uh, four, seven and 10. So have you talked to them about your experiences? Oh, yeah. yeah, they know all about it. And what they, are their thoughts on that? They wish we lived there. <laughs> <laughs> they they want to they live in the woods and go hunting. and uh, They just think it sounds like the best place ever. So, so they're very excited about going. And, you know, I've got like that bow and arrow there. The kids have seen that. And <laughs> they, they really want to go use that. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they do. <laughs> I'm sure it'd be the most interesting thing that if my son walked in right now, he would actually go right over there. Yeah. To that. <laughs> Guaranteed. Yeah. So do you think that, uh, you know, your experiences, you know, talking about that with your kids, do you think that, uh, do you think that they're going to go travel and, and experience the same things you experience? Oh, we'll see. I mean, we took them to Vietnam with us and, they all got really motion sick. So I think combined we threw up like 30 times <laughs> on the way to Vietnam. And that did not endear them to travel much. They didn't um, want to hop back on a plane. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, they, I think right now, um, they're at that stage in their life where the world is just whatever is right around them. 
and Manhattan, Kansas is every bit as interesting as Vietnam, you know, sure. so, uh, so they don't have the bug yet, but I think it's neat that their horizon is pretty distant. I mean, they kind of, I mean, they've been to Vietnam now, they've essentially been on the other side of the world. So when they, as they age, I think they're not, it's not going to be out of the realm of possibility like it is for a lot of kids. I think a lot of kids just think, you know, that's just so far and yeah. scary and impossible. So even just going there, I think, takes away that impossible piece. And uh, that's all I really want for them. So. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd love to talk to you about Papua New Guinea in detail, but I, I've w I really want to jump into talking about the art of being human. Okay. Because I really feel like that is something that you're kind of pushing right now. Mm -hmm. um, how did that come about and what were the thoughts of, I mean, obviously your experiences, but what yeah. kind of led you to, to come up with this idea? Uh, so, well, there's a couple of things. So the art of being human is a lot of things. Uh, one is it's a new textbook that I've written that's free. You know, and the big push there was just that textbooks were rising in cost. They're over two hundred dollars. A lot of the students who come to K State uh, aren't flush with money. You know, like they're they're struggling. So to to tag two hundred dollars on them seemed a little much. <laughs> and the other thing about textbooks is that they tend to be focused on uh, bold-faced terms and memorizing bold-faced terms. And I felt like, what a shame. You know, like we are studying the history and sort of, I don't know, the, when you're studying all humans in all times and all places, there's potentially a tremendous wealth of wisdom that comes out of that. And instead of just looking at these people as exotic others, I thought, why not look at them as examples of the art of being human? Like these are people who have crafted a life, wherever it might be, whether it's in you know, the rainforest of New Guinea or the savanna or wherever they are, They've found a way to, to be human and to, they're, they're like sort of beautiful expressions of humanity. And that in fact, they might actually have some wisdom for us. And that's how I wanted to approach the study of all humans in all times and all places. So that's where the name, the art, it's kind of a double name. It's the science of human beings, the art of being human with a focus on that art of being human piece. And then I just sat down for a whole summer a few years ago and tried to ex kind of tried to figure out what are the big lessons that all these humans around the world can give to us like what are the big ideas and I started writing those down and I came up with you know a few dozen and then I, I got those down to 10 big ones and then that became the framework for the book and the class and, and everything else and then as a teacher I realized that these that students can't just memorize these ideas that's not how it works you know like these are you know especially when it comes to life lessons you have to integrate them into your life or they're meaningless you know just like it doesn't mean much to like memorize something or yeah. and a lot of people have like some quote that they like to you know which I think is important that they use almost like a mantra and that's good but until you like integrate that into your life it's meaningless and so I then developed 10 challenges to go with the 10 lessons and then the challenges are meant to kind of challenge the student to actually live that idea into their life in some way. So the first one, for example, is just that people are different and that those differences are something to embrace, not something to be scared of. 
And the first challenge is to go talk to a stranger and have a deep conversation with somebody who's different from you, like who's like who you can visibly see is like not the kind of person you normally approach, <laughs> you know. And I like it. Yeah. It's super hard. Uh, it's, yeah. hard for, it's hard for me. It's hard for. It's just awkward. Yeah, man, I super think for hard. people. And and you don't want to like take somebody's time and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's hard to find like the exact right place to do that. Uh, but it also leads to some of the most like magical moments, you know, of like reaching across uh, a social divide, you know, where I would never talk to a person who looks like this or talks like this, and and then you start doing so, and and you do realize that differences can and should be embraced. Not they're not something to be afraid of. So have you had a lot of, I mean, what are the challenges, I guess, with, with some of the, I mean, I'm sure with students, being a teacher myself, yeah. you know, you run into these, these problems as you, as you run along. What, yeah. what have been the problems that you've had as far as with the course? Well, goes? of course, one of the problems is, uh, it's hard, it depends on how you define a problem. <laughs> uh, a lot of the problems actually turn out to be the types of problems you'd expect and that are actually kind of good problems. For example, one problem you immediately see is that students, a lot of students don't push themselves very hard and they will just go find another student. <laughs> and they'll like, hey, you're a stranger. Yeah, talk to you. I don't know you. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's not a very big divide. So, so you just talk to them about that. And that, that's where, you know, that problem becomes an opportunity to talk about. Okay, so why, why didn't you, why don't you go talk to somebody else and then we all talk about that and that's great right let's yeah. let's all like get it out in the open that it's hard to talk to strangers because of x y and z let's get down to the nitty-gritty that a lot of the fear uh, is not coming from the stranger but coming from inside coming from our own biases you know now you turn that problem into an insight you know i love it yeah, yeah. it's great so that's the kind of thing we typically run into uh, what's and, your favorite what's your favorite one out of the uh, you know, we of the challenges yeah. or oh uh, gosh, let's see. My favorite one would be uh, we have one called the twenty eight day challenge, and that one is so. That's where we're talking about all humans, all t all times, all places. We we talk about like really ancient humans and kind of where we came from and what makes us different from animals. And what makes us different from animals is that we are literally creatures of habit. Whereas animals are creatures of instincts, and our habits uh, really dominate our lives, and for better or worse. And the 28-day challenge is a challenge to see if you can actually change a habit in 28 days. So, oh man! Or create, so you have to create a new habit or break an old habit, and uh, and that can mean any number of things. So sometimes students pick up a new instrument. So they, so it's also called trying something new. Um, so they might pick up an instrument. They might start running. They might. Um, they might go on a diet plan. Um, those are kind of the more common ones. Uh, sometimes people try to break a habit, you know, like smoking or something like that. Uh, and then they, the real neat thing about it, about it is you know, sort of tracking like what's going on with you as you try to do that. And we talk then, it gets into like some pretty good stuff about, you know, sort of, hack, you know, sort of life hacking and like how do you create a habit? How do you break habits? Um, none of this is easy and I, I think that the 28 day challenge is one of those that a lot of students fail at you know um, 
but I think it's it's at least useful to have them reflect on like why did you fail this time you know let's do this again my favorite thing about the 28 day challenge is it's probably the one that gets redone the most and that, that's what I love about the whole class is that a lot of these challenges are not ones that students stop doing like they just keep doing them even though they're not you know there's no grade attached <laughs> after you do it the first time but I've had students go on and essentially do 28 day challenges indefinitely you know like they just keep doing 28 day challenges like so they do running and then they pick up an instrument and then they and then they just kind of pile up you know and pretty soon they're a totally different person because of a series of 28 day challenges you know? oh man that's amazing i want to take the class <laughs> i really yeah. do and i think it'd be very i think it's good for high school i think it's good for anybody really yeah um, we've been thinking a lot i've been thinking about that a lot is um we have a high school in texas using it now oh really and, yeah and how's that gone? I mean, they're great. Yeah, they, I mean, they do amazing work. I think in part because in college, we have one semester and we pack everything into that one semester, 16 weeks. But a lot of these lessons take some time that you need to reflect, you need to think about it. And what's nice about high school is you can spread it out over the whole year and you can kind of mix it in with another curriculum, you know. So they've mixed it in with their uh, basically their social sciences and they spread it out over the whole year so they're doing other things but the course sort of offers a framework for these other things and i think because they have more time to work on things they actually do in many cases better work than the college students are doing so so that's been really really neat to see and and i i, I would love to see it adopted in high schools you know it's it's all free and online so anybody can pick it up and i think that's kind of the way curriculum I think should start heading yeah. is the way you're doing it. Um, yeah. is, is more, it's more interactive. Yeah. It's not, hey, I'm telling you these things. <laughs> yeah. Let's memorize these things. Yeah. Being a language teacher, you know, I, that's all about, I mean, you have to, you have to use it. Yeah. And that was, uh, being a language teacher, I had to throw this in there because, you know, when you started talking about the language of, Pop, well, languages of yeah. Papua New Guinea. Yeah. And I was curious how that experience was for you as far as, yeah. because then you, you, you go, it brings you back to making connections with people. How are you gonna make connections with people when you don't know mm -hmm. language? Yeah. So how, how was that experience? And, and yeah. do you still speak as well, a pigeon, right? I can speak pigeon really, really well, yeah. Um, so I had this great language teacher. Uh, so not a lot of people speak any languages in New Guinea, right, from outside New Guinea. So I just happened that um, I went to a grad school where my advisor had been to Papua New Guinea, lived there for many years. And so every Friday I'd go in and he would give me a, a language lesson and then I'd, he'd give me stuff to study for the next week. And so this went on for the whole first year before I went to New Guinea. And those mornings I would walk in and he would just start talking to me in Pigeon. And I was just, of course, like totally, totally lost. And then he would hand me these little papers. Now, this is a guy who, to this day, does not use computers. Uh, he hates computers. So every morning he comes in 5 a.m. and he starts typing on this old typewriter. And he would go in at 5 a.m. on a Friday, start typing, and hand me this little piece of paper with my lesson for the day. And it would have these like super profound insights on it about the nature of this language. For example, that um, they don't really have a word for to be and they don't have like a whole like our language like really is centered on 
being, and the word be, right? Yeah, for the sure. Be, are, were, all, all forms of that, right? And, and they don't have that. And then he has like this deep, like philosophical extrapolation about what that means and how, you know, Descartes basically couldn't exist within this language. <laughs> like, the whole Western <laughs> philosophical tradition could not have existed. But instead of that Western philosophical tradition, they basically might have leapfrogged our Western tradition and jumped into this, you know, more abs like just this more like, uh, I don't know, more like phenomenology for lack of a better word, just like a deeper uh, uh, understanding of being and by bypassing the word being. That's the kind of thing that we would talk about. And so I had like this love of language that transcended just like the pragmatic, I'm gonna learn to speak this. He instilled in me the sense that this language was a gateway to a totally different way of seeing the world. And that was highly motivating. You know, I was just like, wow, that's what I want. That's <laughs> you know? absolutely, that's so, the motivation. Um, yeah, so I, I learned quite a bit of it before I went. And, uh, but it's obviously just totally different once you get there. Now I remember, being there wondering like you know I don't know if you've been in that phase where there's a lot of languages being spoken if you've ever been in like a multilingual situation and you're trying to learn one of them and it's super frustrating because you can't even figure out when they're speaking the one you're trying to learn you know that's um, how that's how little you know <laughs> right? I mean I, I can remember the experiences being because I, well, I taught in Brazil in, in a yeah. favela and, and they were speaking Portuguese but there was somebody that was not from the favela speaking Portuguese, and I was like, that sounds completely <laughs> different. And it's just, uh, I understand yeah. where you're coming from, but I'm yeah. sure it's to a whole new extent in Papua yeah. New Guinea. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's exactly the kind of thing it was. And, and it's just really, I mean, it can feel very defeating for a while, you know. And it wasn't until I made, like, close friends, uh, and that just happened because, you know, I met a guy who wanted to learn English, he was my age, and I wanted to learn his language. And so we just, we became like, I mean, it was almost like we were long lost brothers. And in fact, he saw me that way. Uh, I was just old enough. I was, I was just like 11 months older than him. And he had, his brother had died in childbirth 11 months before him. And so he thought, and he actually literally thought. Reincarnated, <laughs> yeah. Just... That I was probably the spirit of his brother come back. And that's how, he got that from his mother. His mother um, would say that all the time, and she just, you know, was just a, amazing. Uh, the way she embraced me and brought her into her family, brought me into her family. So it was just really great. And so once we connected, then I had like this single speaker, and that helped a lot because you know I'm, I'm not like, and he was patient with me and all that kind of stuff. So working with him, uh, I'd say within 30 days, then I was able to converse with people. I wasn't fluent, but I was conversing in a way that would surprise people. And, and you get that little, um, that beautiful little moment where you're actually connecting with people in their language and you can just sense the appreciation they have for that. You know, I mean, it just immediately brings you into the, to their world. You know, it wasn't Nelson Mandela who said something like... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That, that quote actually... Yeah. And people probably don't understand it if they don't. It's, yeah. like, it's, it's almost like a euphoric feeling. Like, yeah. oh yeah, it's, we're actually yeah. making this connection. Yeah. I think the quote's something about like when you speak to them in their language, you talk to their heart or something. Yeah. Like you speak to their heart. And that's, that's exactly what it is, right? And, and I think... I don't know if you have the same experience you know, in, in Brazil or wherever you may go, Costa Rica... But 
now I've been there long enough that it's not just the language, but it's, but you realize that there is a, the language comes along with a full, a culture. And when I step off the plane in New Guinea, there's a, I can feel my body posture change. I can feel like everything, my, my, my intentions change, my values change, you know, and, uh, I slip into this other space and, and it's just really, I feel very fortunate to be able to flip into that space, you know? Yeah. It's, I've thought a lot about this as well. Like yeah. this is like the mimicry that human beings go through, Yeah. you know, and I'm sure that you spoke and said things, the same things that, that uh, your friend did in yeah. Papua New Guinea, because you're—that's who you're kind of—that's your teacher, that's right. who, that's <laughs> yeah. your mentor. You yeah, know? yeah. And so that that experience, I think everybody should. Yeah. Because I don't feel like you can really understand it until you've experienced it yourself. That's one of the—I think that's one of the really fun things about language learning is when you're far enough in that you start sort of mimicking what people are saying, and and then you start adopting meanings for words and phrases that you actually have no idea what they mean in English. Like you've never bothered to translate them in your mind, right? Yeah. <laughs> they have like their own special meaning within the context of that language. And that's when you know like, okay, I've, I've reached a new milestone here in terms of fluency. That's a really cool, it's a really cool feeling. It is. I went to Cuba for a little bit of time because it was one of my bucket list places to go. And I came back and some of the Spanish that I was, I almost sounded, I was like, man, I'm kind of sounding like a Cuban right now. <laughs> yeah. Some of the things I'm saying, and yeah. I was only there for a short time. Yeah. So I can only imagine, yeah. you know, what your experiences were in Papua New Guinea. Can you kind of give a layout of um, how the country is and, and as far as like, uh, the geography, the cities, where you were at, and then like kind of how the languages are spread out throughout Yeah, the so basically the big major cities are mostly on the coast, and then up through the highlands there's a, there's a road that goes up through the highlands. The island itself, gosh, how big is it? I've never really bothered to place it against, um, you know, the states to see like how big it is. Right. I remember reading them because I did a, another podcast about West Papua. Yeah, yeah. And they were talking about it being one of the bigger islands. It's a big, in, I mean, it's the, the second world. biggest island in the world. It's a large island. So it's not small by any means. And in fact, because it's so rugged, uh, I mean, it would take you to go across the center of the island walking would take months, you know. Yeah. Uh, and you'd be lucky to survive. Sure. There. It's just, it's extremely difficult terrain and lots of people have died in New Guinea uh, either taken by the rivers or whatnot uh, very dangerous a lot of where I was at I was right in the center of the island and so I was actually uh, just dead on the border with West Papua and Papua New Guinea what do people think I'm curious because I talked to, to somebody about West Papua yeah. what do people from Papua New Guinea think about the people from West Papua well, in general, like, they feel like they're all one people, you know, that um, they, they just, they, they feel like, I mean, especially where I was, they, I mean, those people move across the border constantly. Really? And uh, because that's their homeland, homeland, you know, like the homeland is split by this arbitrary line that was placed there in 1884 by people who had never been there before. Uh, they, and it was placed solely based on, it's 141st meridian, 
which is so arbitrary. You know, I mean, at that time, it wasn't even clear that Greenwich would be the place where zero was, right? <laughs> it was going to be Greenwich or Paris. If it had been Paris, that line would be far enough to the east that all the people I studied with would have been in West Papua rather than in in uh, crazy to Papua New <laughs> Totally, it's totally arbitrary. And so, you know, my my friends have been deeply affected by that line, and they talk about it as the line that that drew blood that has uh, that has them still, um, you know, still bleeding. I'm sure you know the, the history behind it. Can you yeah. give us kind of a brief history? I know a little bit about the Indonesian yeah. uh, conflict, but could you give like a brief history of, because you probably know more being there, mm -hmm. when it was and, and what really happened with that divide? Yeah, so, well, the, the island of New Guinea uh, for, <laughs> for many thousands of years was uh, just occupied by, uh, by Papuans, right? And there are some different sort of ethnic groups within that, uh, particularly, just to simplify, uh, people along the coast tend to be somewhat different than people in the highlands. And the global trade started to affect that area early on because of, uh, they have a lot of birds of paradise in that area. So like, especially in the highlands, there's, there's incredible animals and birds that can't be found anywhere else in the world. And traders from some of the early Asian empires were very attracted to some of these things, especially like the plumes from these birds of paradise, just these, it's, just, it's almost impossible to explain some of these things. They're just, they don't make sense. You know, it's like this tiny little bird and they'll have like this long, beautiful ribbon flowing behind it. Like, or this, these gorgeous yellow plumes that are, you know, two feet long on this tiny little bird. Just amazing. And uh, so these, these, some of these early Asian empires would trade to get these things. And one of the things that happened during this time was sweet potato then came into the region and sweet potato was a lot more productive than some of the earlier native crops and so the population boomed <clears throat> and so then by the time people even knew well I, I mean we're actually I mean to, to say when it divided you have to realize it divided when people thought it was a vast expanse of no man's land in the middle they really thought nobody lived in the middle of this whole island when they split it so when they split it they were just thinking about the coast. They thought people live on the coast and that's all there is. The whole middle is uninhabitable and nobody's there. Kind of like Brazil. <laughs> yeah. It sounds yeah. very similar. Yeah, exactly. So they, they split the island. Um, you know, it was, it was a three-way split at the time uh, between the Dutch, the Germans, and essentially what became Australia. Uh, and the, the German and Australian side eventually became just the Australian side. And then uh, the Dutch side, uh, you know, all of this is happening at a time of decolonization. So the Dutch are leaving Indonesia. Um, the, you know, the Australians are looking to leave the New Guinea, the Papua New Guinea side. And so around the 60s and 70s, the Dutch leave and leave it to Indonesia. Indonesia then tries to build a national consciousness of their island, of their island nation. And it becomes like really deeply imprinted on the Indonesian people that this is their land at the same time that the Papuan people feel like, I mean, a lot of them 
especially like the people I know, uh, had no idea that Indonesia now ruled them. Because <laughs> you know? uh, uh, they're, they're not even connected in any way. And then all, so there, so the, the, in, the impact of Indonesia for them was suddenly Indonesian troops are in sort of these main station villages, like some of the bigger villages. And they bring services on the one hand, like they take over services that the Dutch have been providing. So basic medicine, some schools, things like that. Um, they start teaching Bahasa, which is part of the program to like bring them into the Indonesian um, nation. And, but unfortunately, Indonesians came with a lot of racism as well. And they viewed the Papuans as, you know, much lower than them. And they treated them very poorly, very, very poorly. Uh, so there, there have been a lot of reports of, of uh, extreme violence, burning of villages, raping of women, just really terrible things. Um, that, but for those who have experienced those atrocities, like, you know, they, they mostly have come to the Papua New Guinea side, like a lot. And so one of the experiences I had a lot of was, you know, being there on the border, you would see people essentially finding a way to live in Papua New Guinea, which is very hard because in a traditional society where land is everything, it's really hard to be a refugee because you come into a space yeah, where no you don't land. have the land. So, so that was really hard on people. Um, it's been hard on the land. So that the region where I lived uh, just completely overpopulated and um, overfarmed, and that leads to landslides and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of damage from that. Uh, but there is this other side, and that is there are people... Um, local Papuans who embrace the Indonesian government and appreciate uh, all the services that have been brought to them and have found employment through them and so on. It gets complicated really fast <laughs> sure. when you're on the ground, you know, and uh, uh, it's, 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 it is, and it changes, you know, year to year as well. And a lot of it, you know, a lot of people are trying to just m make the best future they can based on the understanding they have of the situation. And at times, Indonesia offers better opportunities than Papua New Guinea does, and sometimes it's the opposite. And it is often like a reflection of what opportunities are offered on either side of the border as to which pe way people's... Uh, loyalties sure. swing. The reality is like the, where I live is very much, um, you know, I mean, it's actually a, a culture where they're, uh, they practice <laughs> a form of uh, kinship and descent where it's almost like strategic based on like who you affiliate with. So you, um, it's called ambilineal affiliation. It's, it's a technical term, but it, it means that your family, like for example, your last name being Moody, like you say that you're Moody, but um, if instead you didn't have a last name and you could instead take any last name that you can from your family tree above you, that's what they can do. They can essentially be like, oh, I'm gonna take that name, right? And it's just based on like strategy and affiliation. And you could change names many times even during a day. So I would travel with people 
And, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm traveling with like, you know, my friend, uh, you know, and, and his last name is a folkim or something, right? And then, and he's like affiliating with a certain clan by claiming that last name. And then we go to another village and it's kind of the homeland of this other clan and then suddenly his name changes. You know, he introduces himself differently. And it's all about just recognizing that you have kinship with people and highlighting that kinship with them. And Making the connection with yeah. them. Yeah. And so it's constant. They're constantly doing that. And I think they've done the same thing now with their nationhood. You know, it's like, I'm Papua New Guinean now. It's like, oh wait, no, I'll be Indonesian now. <laughs> you know? yeah. Depending on where the, the, where the, where it's best strategically. And it, I mean, they're mostly, a lot of them are multilingual, you know, they speak Bahasa and English as well as, well as like local languages. So it's, it's pretty, they're morphing and they're yeah. mimicking yeah, and they're, to their situation. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a great, it's actually a pretty great portrait of human adaptability and, and whatnot, you know, I mean, they're, they're making the best of it, and, and a lot of them are doing, doing pretty well given the circumstances, you know. And what, what kind of, why did you choose Papua New Guinea? What, what kind of clicked in your head like, hey, I'd, I'd like to go there? Because it kind of sounded in yeah. some of your videos that you, you kind of had your heart set on that. Yeah, uh, I think... The main thing was that it seemed it was as different a place uh, in the world as I could imagine. Like it was just that that was the main thing. Just that it was on the other side of the world and it was very, very different. And at the time I also thought that they would be somehow like closer to how like humans lived in the past. I think that's maybe a naive idea now. Um, but at the time that, that, that was on my mind, you know, I wanted to like, I wanted to be in a small village where people were like hunting and raising food on their own, like sort of a self-subsistent kind of place. You know? Was there any other places that were on your radar that you thought about, but uh, quickly, or was it? No, <laughs> that was it. Like, it's kind of strange to say, but th that was the place. And a lot of that's just ignorance you know I was just young and I didn't know about a lot of places I hadn't really been very many places so so up until this point uh, what are you what would you say you're most proud of as far as your works I mean you have a lot of different things you've done and uh, what would you say putting together and, and spending the most time what are you what are you the most proud of mm. I, don't know. I mean I suppose uh, I think in some ways my life's work is going to be encapsulated in this intro class that I teach you know and it's it's just a string of experiences I'm trying to take students through that I hope leads them different when they're on the other side of it so it's a 16-week course and, I, and that's in a sense what amp101.com is built up after um, that's probably it's hard it's strange to say like I'm most proud of it because I feel like it's still a work in progress you know and I think I think so many things are works in progress you know the best things are works in progress you know yeah. so I, I suppose maybe that'll be the thing that I leave here you know in some way like the, if somebody talks about leaving a legacy or something um, but you know who knows it's a it's a long life I guess that's what I'm working on that's what 
that's my biggest passion. It's probably what I'm most proud of at this point. How do you how do you balance that balance that out with all your? I mean, what would, yeah. what would a typical day look like <laughs> during the school year for you? Uh, so I, I get up around five or so. Uh, I don't wake up with an alarm clock. I just get up when I get up, and I try to be out the door and running as soon as possible. So a run is the first thing in my day, and I I run. Usually I just run to work, you know, and... Or rollerblading. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the rollerblading was solely for... Was the, it solely for the... For the stability of the camera. Oh, like, I got you. I, you didn't want it done. Yeah, that. I just didn't have... Well, you know, I, at that time I didn't have any expensive gimbals or anything that can handle running. Now I probably could run, like, with a gimbal or something. And they're the, even, you know, frankly, the GoPro sticks can handle... I got the GoPro stick. It's <laughs> yeah. awesome. It's yeah. got the stabilizer. Right. It's pretty cool. See, that can handle running... But that was, you know, this was a long time ago, like 15 months ago, and they didn't have the GoPro 6. Yeah, true. <laughs> Technology changes fast. It does. And, and I was just thinking, like, how can I get this stable, you know? And, and I, I thought I could try skateboarding, but I'm terrible at skateboarding. And I thought, well, I'm, I can rollerblade, you know? So I just got something that I could do that would keep the camera stable and still provide, like, an interesting background. And that's what I went with. So... So yeah, but normally it's a run. I run to work and then I have like a change of clothes here. And uh, I try not to check email until like 11 a.m. or so. So I'm just kind of in the zone of, you know, I, I try to go to, I try to wake up with all kinds of thoughts and I try to get those thoughts down. Do you write or journal a lot? or? Yeah, um, I have a couple of different <clears throat> styles of journal that I do and then um, you know I mean, it's sort of like basic I, a lot of this stuff I, I think it's basic and then uh, sometimes you run in like all, all the time you run into people who don't do this stuff and, like they're like basic productivity hacks you know for sure and, uh, I mean a few of the real basic ones are like yeah journal in the morning don't get on the computer just avoid the computer like avoid all I, I try to avoid all media the news, anything, anything that can distract me from sort of this space that I just came out of, like a very precious space of sleep where all kinds of creative things happen and just try not to like get into the world <laughs> for as long as you can. And for me, I, on a good day, I can postpone that until 11 or so. Um, sometimes I have to check in on something. Like if I'm going to go teach, for example, and I'm teaching about worldly affairs I do have to check the news just to make sure there isn't something that happened that needs to be talked about within the realm of my talk right so there's that but typically I stay away from all that till about 11 and I only check email twice a day like I try to do like 11 and 3 and just and other than that I just try to stay off of all I mean that my phone's off like there nobody can interrupt me <laughs> you know gotta have that focus yeah, yeah. it's tough at times though. it's super hard yeah. I, and in today in today's world it's harder than ever yeah. uh, the biggest I think it's the biggest uh, sort of I don't know temptation that any of us have throughout the day is to is to is to get on online and check something on Facebook or go to your favorite website or whatever it is. You know, those are the things that distract us. Even traveling, you know, with kids. Yeah. The, the, the you know, the international plans. You yeah. can still 
get the same. I didn't know this, but you can still get the same exact internet that you can get yeah. here oh, over yeah. there. Yeah, it's crazy. So you know, and often when, better even. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And yeah. easier. And oh man, I mean, in Vietnam, you know, you go and you flip your SIM card out, and for fifteen dollars, you have blazing fast internet the whole time you're there on your phone, faster than what we have here, and yeah. So then you carry those distractions around with you. Oh gosh, and it pains me so much because first time I traveled, you know, and this was a big change. I remember this like we they had cyber cafes, and that was yeah. that was like a big deal. And I, I I went to a cyber cafe when I first got to Bolivia. It was the first place I ever went. Like, it was really a hard trip for me, and I was you know twenty years old. And I immediately emailed my anthropology professor, you know, just thanking like, hey, I'm here, like. It's great. And he wrote back and he's like, do not email me or anybody else. <laughs> the get off of the, the internet. <laughs> and and uh, that was important advice, you know. And a day later, I was as lost as I've ever been, way off the tourist path. And it was all just, you just make one decision. It's and that that decision if you can make it if you can be strong enough to make it, it can change your life and for me it was just you know I went out on a bus and there were tourists on it right and they'd get off at this these like famous ruins and all that kind of stuff and then when you're done all the tourists get back on another bus to take them back to the hostels and all that stuff back in La Paz right but there was another bus going the other direction and it was all locals getting on that bus. And I thought, I'm going to get on that bus. <laughs> and I got on that bus. And I ended up in this place, and they had no idea what to do with me. They, they, didn't have, they didn't have any hotels. They didn't have a hostel. They didn't have... Who is this guy? They, they, <laughs> they didn't have, have any restaurants. You know, I'm like in this little village. And, but they just they took care of me. And uh, you know, within a few days, I had like new friends. And uh, I was in a situation you just could never be in, right? Exactly. So uh, I think... It's bringing me back to so many <laughs> memories that I have. So yeah. it's, it's great. Yeah. And I, I think that, I, well, anybody really. I mean, but I think our students need it more than ever. I mean, I think yeah. that I just see them, you know, especially when we, you know, I take kids abroad and they have issues with, you know, their phones and mm. they can't contact their mom or dad. And yeah. so it's just like a, it's a big stressor. Yeah. And it's that connection that they need. And mm-hmm. I just want them to not have that yeah. you know yeah. and sometimes it's hard because yeah. there's still kind of that yeah. they want to have that connection i wonder if how few people will ever have what we had you know like where you do get off the beaten track and there's no there's no chance of connecting like if you want to connect you, know, you can wait for the bus it might come next week <laughs> you know, some know. random place you know <laughs> yeah. a bus stop with a just a rickety old bench yeah. to sit on and wait and yeah maybe they'll come maybe they won't you yeah know? it's yeah wild stuff I think I think I think I have hope I have hope that it it's gonna happen yeah and I even kind of the trips I take I've kind of talked about maybe getting rid of that but it's it's hard because you know this is this device you know is a part of their life. I mean, mm-hmm. It is almost like their identity in, yeah. in a way. Yeah. Um, I see it every day. I'm sure you do too with your um, with your classes of yeah. however many, 300, yeah. 400 kids in yeah. there. You know, you can see them looking down and yeah. it's just a connection. You know? It's really changed the nature of the classroom profoundly. You know, I don't think it's just that it's on them in the classroom and that's changing things. Yeah, I mean, part of their attention is always 
you know, just on the buzz in their pocket. If not, I mean, a lot of them place it down in front of them so they can see the notifications pop up as they go. And that's, that's uh, super hard as a teacher to figure out how to deal with that. Yeah. And I certainly worry that students are missing out on some really profound experiences that take time to develop. You know, they, they can't be interrupted every five, 15 minutes or whatever, you know. I'm, I'm deeply concerned about all that, but I feel like an old man as, I, as these concerns raise, you know, because I remember the old people being concerned about me, you know. Yeah. And, but I think, I think the one, there are timeless truths um, that have been written about for thousands of years, and they show up in ancient texts like the Upanishads and the Bible and all that stuff. And, and, and one ancient truth is that, that, that appears in almost all the world religions. And as I think about it, I'm like, yeah, it's in all the world religions. <laughs> it's that there's always, every moment of your life is a choice between two paths. And one leads to short-term fulfillment, and one term leads toward long-term joy. And it gets easier and more seductive to take that short-term desire, you know, like that, to take that text message or that Facebook post or whatever it is. And um, among the numerous other things, right, versus that long-term joy. And it plays out in all aspects of our life uh, to where that short-term desire has now been actually engineered by the most creative, wisest, smartest people on the planet to be ever more enticing, right? I mean, we know Facebook has engineered this <laughs> to be like extremely seductive and, and whatnot. And that's your social, that, that is potentially your, your so, where your social energies go. Your social energies go into like creating likes and getting followers and et cetera, et cetera. And meanwhile, the long-term joy that comes from really giving yourself to other people in meaningful ways and creating deep relationships is some and sometimes sacrificed you know in an effort to get those likes and to get <laughs> and all that kind of stuff uh, your our love lives can be I mean again there's this engineering that's gone on with uh, everything from not just Facebook but then even like say high-speed internet porn and then the long-term joy that comes from like having a real relationship with somebody that's nothing like what's offered in high-speed porn. No. <laughs> you know? And right there. Yeah. And I think that is now it's an amazing time to be alive because those short-term desires are so seductive and so powerful that if you think of these things as two roads that road toward long-term joy is not very populated. And that can actually be a good thing in a, for you personally, in that you can have a lot of success <laughs> if you're willing to walk down that, that road, because everybody else is distracted. And that's, that's, the, that's the one sort of silver lining to this, otherwise kind of a very difficult time. I think it's a very difficult time to grow up, and it's a very difficult time to it's really a difficult time for everybody, I think. I mean, the economy is shifting. Like, nothing feels as stable as it used to. And uh, the silver lining is that if you can keep your 
heart set on things that you can control that lead toward long-term joy against all odds, which I mean, it's very difficult at this time to do that. You will find a lot of opportunities because you will be a rare person, <laughs> you know? So, Unique. Yeah. 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 How do you, how do you think we can do that? You know, I, it's a, that's the yeah question, you know, what, what do we, you know, I, we talk about it all the time in school and yeah. Hey, let's, it's, it's called the word focus. Yeah. What is focus? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's, a, that's the, that is the big educational question to grapple with right now. Like you and I are both educators and we have to figure this out. And I think figuring it out, one, we have to realize that um, there's not going to be some grand big theory that just like answers everything for us in the same way that there's not going to be any grand sort of magic pill that solves all problems for our students. It's going to be a lot of little wins and a lot of little insights that lead us down the right path. Um, and I'd say that I think we're, we're, we're getting there. I think it's pretty interesting to see some of the science of learning kind of emerge around this stuff where we're starting to realize how important these qualities that had really been kind of left on the wayside in terms of like helping our students grow and learn and so on. We've always, I think we've taken a very cognitive approach for a really long time. And we're starting to realize that emotions matter a lot in, in terms of how people learn and in terms of whether or not people can focus. Um, mental health and mental well-being matter. Um, a sense of, uh, there's a lot of new literature, as you know, like probably on like grit and growth mindset and curiosity and, 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 and courage and what it takes. Like these are things that are sort of the necessary ingredients of what will allow somebody to take that that road less traveled, right? That that road toward long term joy. And then the question changes because if you're just thinking cognitively, if you think like learning is all about learning stuff and memorizing stuff and that kind of thing, well then you're thinking about like well you're thinking about like what what are the things I can teach them and stuff into their heads and that kind of thing. But when you start realizing that this is a lot more about a certain type of person, a certain set of characteristics, then you start thinking, well, how do I nurture these characteristics? How do I make somebody strong and courageous and so on? And, and then you start realizing that something like high school football is actually super important to somebody's yeah. development in the, in the, as a self. You know, it's not just the, it's not just a side thing. It's actually kind of a central thing. Right? And same thing with, uh, you start designing your classes different. You know, it's not just about memorizing content. It's about actually taking chances and putting that content, bringing it to life, into your life, uh, in, a, in a way that's challenging and hard. And I mean, but, you know, that's just so hard to do, especially at a time when Parents are more concerned than ever about their students. I think that collectively our amygdalas have grown substantially. Like we have more fears. We're, we, yeah, we're, we're caring. We're really caring <laughs> yeah. individuals. And... Yeah, 
For sure. And as a result, we're spending a lot of time keeping our kids safe. And unfortunately, that's not making them strong. I think we have to put them in danger's way just a bit to toughen them up. Yeah, and there's, there's, but there's so many, there's that inkling of what, what if, the yeah. what if is scary. It is scary. I mean, this, gosh, there's so many forces, yeah. right? The litigiousness of our society, like, yeah. the, I mean, you can suddenly be fighting legal battles. Exactly. You, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if you and I could do probably what we'd like to do, which is make it a requirement that all students have to travel dangerously. <laughs> yeah, get, hop on that bus yeah. that's, you know, the tire's a little bit yeah. flat, you know, yeah. there's not anybody that speaks your language. Right. But get on that bus and, and see where it takes you. But one in 10,000 students is going to have like a really bad trip. Yeah. And we would be liable. <laughs> <laughs> those, those teachers talked them into doing that. Yeah. I, I think there's, you know, I taught, you know, and with my new team, I talked about being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. We need to be. I'm going to be vulnerable. You're going to be vulnerable yeah. to some forces that we have no control over. Yeah. But we're going to do what we need to do mm-hmm. and um, live our lives. And I, that's why I'm so intrigued by the art of being human and, and yeah. just jumping into that and, and yeah. seeing what you're doing. I think it's so strong and profound that you know kids are going to start realizing that, yeah. that it's okay to be yeah. vulnerable. And, yeah. I think it's exciting what you're embarking on because I think... Kids at that age are so malleable in many ways, not just mentally, but physically too. So that if you think about a great high school football team, uh, you really can, I think, create a great high school football team out of a bunch of people who maybe would have been the worst junior high team. Yeah. Because if you give them a work ethic, you somehow inspire them to work hard and eat right. You know, it's all the things you can't see. You, can, you don't control stuff outside of practice, but that's the stuff that matters. It does. Like, are you sleeping enough? Are yeah. you eating enough? Are you, you know, are you taking care of yourself? Yeah. Are you not drinking, yeah. drinking like empty calories and, you know, killing your brain cells? Exactly. <laughs> I hear you. Um, those are the types of things I wish that they would understand. And it's yeah. so hard because you talk about the, the immediate, you know, yeah. gratification of, of, uh, you know, diet, diet is a thing, yeah. you know, and, and when you say eat, you need to eat clean. Yeah. Kids don't really understand what that no, is. I have no idea. Yeah. They, they, they see it something and they just pop it in their mouth, yeah. you know. It's, no, a lot of that's like they're not educated about it and that kind of thing. So, I mean, maybe you can go, I mean, gosh, if you could just show them who they could be, you know, their senior year versus like who they might be if they don't. I mean, I, I have, I wish I knew what I know now. About, oh. you know, eating well and exercising and sleeping. I mean, I could have been a very different person my yeah. senior year of high school. And you miss some of your best years of development physically if you're not aware of those things. And it's just something else that you can do to make yourself better. Yeah. And, and I feel like that's kind of, and that's what we need is, is a big picture thing. And, yeah. and you agree with this. And you talked about it a little bit and kind of, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. It's like, the small moments matter. Like mm-hmm. those little tiny, you know, those decisions that you make yeah. that are split second decisions. Yeah. Those things matter over time. They matter a lot. Yeah. I think. I think even if you look at like the course of your day, um, how quickly it can get derailed. You know, if you make like little decisions that take you down a path of, you know, uh, just sort of piddling around, not, not 
not doing those things that will make you better. I mean, that's why I start with a run every day. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like let's start with something that, you know, if I don't do it, like, will I do it later? I don't know. But if it's automatic, like if it's like, there's no choice. You know, I mean, I, it's a routine. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I have to get to work. I've got my work shoes at work. Like all my work clothes are at work. And so, like, really all I have is, like, my workout clothes <laughs> at home. <laughs> What's and the deal? <laughs> it just becomes, like, this automatic thing. And, like, parking is terrible. I'm not going to come uh. and try to park here. So that just becomes, like, automatic that, well, I have to run. It's only a mile and a half. Um, but running a mile and a half sets the tone, you know. Yes. Yeah. And maybe it's good that it's only a mile and a half. Because if it were two miles, I'd be like, maybe I'll try. <laughs> I, think, I think you'd be okay with two miles. Yeah. Running under, under a yeah. five-minute mile, I think you're all right. I yeah. think you'd be okay. Maybe maybe you got there in the 10. Well, but, you know, that's that's right. Sure, now you see me now and you say that. But two years ago, I had not run in like 12 years. You know, and that, that was like a 28-day challenge for me was to start running. To start running, yeah. And I started running to work. And... And that, so I think that's an important thing about these little wins, right? It's like, let's get a little win. So when I do a 28 day challenge, I try to set something up that is like, I'm going to win. I'm going to win this every day. So my 28 day challenge for running was I'm going to run every day. That's the only, that was it. But it did require that I'm going to like actually, you know, get dressed for running or whatever that means. Eventually I just started dressing like I'm going to run everywhere and that, so now like you see me like this is how I dress you know? <laughs> so I can run anytime anywhere and then I have like a closet in my office here full of like I got jeans in there I got you know dress clothes I can dress for whatever occasion from there but but I dress in the morning to run and then I just run and so so the little win was I'm just going to run at all right just it, it, it can be down the block and back you know it can be like two blocks um and I was scared to run because I'd had this torn meniscus for 12 years that would flare up every time I ran. And so I just started doing that and, uh, you know, it just turned into more and more. And three months after I started running, I I literally, this sounds strange, but I, I, I basically accidentally ran a marathon. Like I just set out <laughs> to run. It was just a perfect morning. I, I was reading a great book on my, and it's an audio book. And I just got lost in this book. What was the book? Uh, so it started off. I was reading. Um, I was reading this. Uh, it's called "What Doesn't Kill Us" by Scott Kearney. He's an anthropologist, and he wrote this great book about uh, essentially about how like the comforts of our life make us weaker. So like our shoes make us weaker. Like you'd be a lot stronger if you walked and ran barefoot. You know that kind of thing. Kind of like Born to Run. It's a lot like Born to Run. In fact, so. Born to Run became the. I, I finished that book and then I I gone through eighteen miles and I thought, man, only six, you know, eight more miles. I have this marathon, so I put on Born to Run, ran <laughs> the rest of it, which was a great like motivation, you know, because I, I love that book. But um, yeah, this book, if you like Born to Run, you'll love this book, and it's a it's a it's really mostly about Wim Hof, the I the Ice Man. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. So this is I think the best book about Wim Hof, and I think Wim Hof thinks it's the best book about Wim Hof. <laughs> is that the one I think I saw on your website what's the title again uh, I think it's called What Doesn't Kill Us and it's a picture of maybe him getting yeah. in the water yeah. yeah super good yeah and so I and it was like so I was inspired by that book it was February and it was like low to mid 30s 
And so I went out and like ran like Wim Hof, you know, like a shirt off, you know, and it just felt so good. Like, and I'm re- listening to this book and uh, just the miles just melted off. I was, I was going slow, like, like probably 15, I must've been like 15 minute miles, you know, super slow. Um, just, but just kind of in a state of joy the whole time, you know, just Tracking along, one yeah. foot at a time. Yeah, and then and it just got, um, you know, and I, like, so I'm listening to that book and like talking about shoes and how they make you weaker. So I threw my shoes off and I ran like nine miles barefoot. It's <laughs> 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 just stuff like that. Do you have any Achilles? I've done that before too, and I had some shin problems. Oh and yeah. Something. So I've been doing it for a while. I've been, I've been walking, um, barefoot, and. Uh, wearing like vibram like five measures for a long time uh so my um, my calves are already like they're kind of ridiculous like how strong they are because i yeah. I, <laughs> I run four foot um everywhere and and i literally run everywhere now like i i uh i literally run errands you know like i have a bag and i'll just like run to the grocery store and throw stuff sack in. up and yeah <laughs> and run home and I just, I just like cherish these little piece, those little moments of life where I just think, you know what, I could drive to the grocery store or I could run. And if I run, I'll be a better person when I get home. <laughs> and that, you ask like, what is my day like? That's pretty much my day. It's like, I see it. I have, I don't have a lot of set things in my day. Like my, I'm a, I, have a, I live a very creative life, you know, where I'm, I'm writing and I'm working on films and just doing lots of different things and a lot of what I end up doing on a day is based on inspiration a lot of things that come up in my dreams you know so I wake up I go for a run I process what what was going on in those dreams I get to work I got a couple of journals um, one is sort of like a idea space and one of them is more like a reflective space and the reflective space is where I get out like all the dirt you know like what's what's bothering me, you know, like, I might have, like, conflicts at work or at home or something that I have to, like, work through, and that, that's, like, that journal, and the other journal is, like, an idea journal, but it also includes, like, a space for, you know, sort of a, I don't know, something I started doing is sort of, like, today would be good if I got this done, and it's just, like, a series of tasks <laughs> that I try to knock out. Um, feels good, though, when you knock yeah. this check, check, <laughs> yeah. check mark it off the list, yeah. it feels good. Yeah. And also, I, I, I don't write this stuff down, but um, when I run, like, sometime in the space between home and here, which is usually like a 15-minute run, I try to take, like, I try to think of at least three things that I'm grateful for that are, like, really specific. Um, not, like, abstract things, like, I'm grateful for my kids or my wife or anything like that, but, like, I try to get really specific. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, it's something immediate, like there's something, I mean, it can even be just gratitude for the, uh, I mean, I've been, I've been grateful for pavement before, <laughs> you know, like, it's nice that, to have that. Yeah, right? it's, it's kind of nice sometimes. I mean, I like, I like running on grass too, but, you know, uh, you need to sort of like, flat like, surface. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just appreciate the things around you. And pretty soon, like you, 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 I mean, I, the, I, the pavement one came up because that, that came up today. Like I, 
so it was the pavement and then immediately I was grateful for the people who laid down the pavement and then you're grateful for the people who thought of like how to do this <laughs> you know? and pretty soon you're like ex you're going back and you're like thankful for the people who made the food for the people <laughs> who created the pavement um, and then pretty soon you're like thankful for existence itself you know and that's just like a good space to be in you know to start a day so um, I think all in some ways, like, for whatever reason, um, gratitude ties into all those things that help you make better decisions throughout the day. And it's a mysterious connection, I think, but... I think people, I like uh, your definition of gratitude because I think most, like, that's big right now is asking people, you need to be grateful for, mm -hmm. and most people don't really yeah. know. They think about the the things that are most immediate to them, yeah. which is family and, yeah. and food and stuff like that. But I think thinking about that in, in depth and mm -hmm. taking some time is really, is really nice for, I mean, I know we've asked our, our students and I, most responses we get are family and food, <laughs> you know, yeah. all the things you think about, but yeah. I think it's, it's more profound if you think about other things besides mm -hmm. that. So what, what would you, what would you say that you're, um, putting the most energy in right now as far as next projects for you. I mean, yeah. I know you talked about a book. Right. Is that, is that something that's um, going to happen in, in the near future? Probably, that, you know, I know writing a book is, is a process. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I say the, I mean, the book is almost like a side thing, actually, that provides the framework for my biggest goal right now, which is... I'd really like to become a good filmmaker. And uh, it's funny because, you know, if, if you follow me online, you'd be like, man, you have a long way to go. <laughs> you know, like, like, I think they're pretty good. They're, I mean, maybe what, I mean, so what you've seen is maybe okay, but I have like this whole stash of videos. I make, I make almost a video a day. There have been a few days that I miss, but I'll make a video a day. Um, just kind of practicing something like just something I'm trying to get better at and it's not a video we're showing to anybody you know but I I put it on YouTube usually unlisted so and then I can share it with like a few people if I want to share something uh, but they're all there and for me it's like this record of progress and I have heroes that I'm emulating and these are people who are just extremely good. You know, like they, their stuff gets picked up by National Geographic, that kind of thing. That's where I'm aiming. And I, I kind of think I might get there in five years. I don't know. I'm giving myself five years before I like start beating myself up. <laughs> it's know? like, come on, when is this going to happen? Yeah. But you know, the thing is like, I work on it every day. It's, it's definitely like the core passion in my life right now. Um, I see it as like, a way of extending my teaching, you know? So teaching is the core thing of my life, but I see video work as like an extension of that. So I'm trying to get really good at it. And then, um, how are you learning? I mean, how are I you? I from other YouTubers basically. So you're on there, you're using it. Vimeo and just, gosh, just, I, I watch, I, I learn, I practice, and then I also teach this stuff. So, you know, I created, I have like a basically like a filmmaking class that I teach here at K State. And is that called film? I think I saw maybe a link to it. Yeah, so or... right. So on Amphone One, there's a link for film school, and there you can kind of see, and that's where you can see some of the unlisted stuff because I'll post it there for my students. 
Um, I'm not, so the, the reason why I don't post it in general public is because if you don't have the context that this is somebody just trying to learn something, yeah. <laughs> it won't make any sense. It, you know, like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. There's no like real story or anything. It's just like, Hey, I tried to do this effect you know, or something yeah. like that. Um, but, but it's been a fun journey and, and, you know, going to Vietnam was like a little practice run of like the dream of being able to go to another culture and tell us, tell interesting stories with the people there. Like actually like immersing myself with locals and then finding the stories that resonate with them and then telling those stories, which is a little different than the typical travel blog, which is, you know, more about the experience of the traveler or the tourist. Like I'd rather, I want to tell the stories of the people there, which is kind of parallel, I think, to your destinations podcast. Yeah. yeah. And so it's a lot like that, actually. Um, that's the dream. So five-year plan, that's that's it, pretty much. <laughs> well, we kind of share the same. Um, video has been really something I've been diving into. Yeah. Um, it's just, there's so much that goes into it. The yeah. editing process is time-consuming. Yeah, for sure. And so just being on the balance side. I bought a drone just on a whim. Yeah, nice. Found out that it wasn't the greatest. I mean, I, I wanted the GoPro camera because uh -huh. I wanted to be able to take that out and oh, use yeah. a GoPro, yeah. but I also wanted the drone, so I didn't want to have to get a DJI and then have right. to go and get a GoPro. I went yeah. the cheap route. Yeah. And uh, so now I'm having trouble with my, with my drone. So you have the Karma drone. I have the Karma. Yeah. It's just, you know, they don't make them anymore. And yeah. so now it's just like, man, I, my brother's actually into this fit pretty big, and he's like, you need to get the DJI. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, like, you know, I'm trying to, teacher's budget, man. I'm, yeah. I'm trying to stay cheap, but I want to be yeah. able to have that GoPro that goes along with it. But. Honestly, I mean, if you have the six on the car, yeah, I do. you can do a lot with that. Yeah, yeah. It's just the the flying. Um, I only get a certain amount of fly time with that oh, karma. Right. Yeah. Um, DJI is a little bit better. Yeah. That. How much fly time do you get? Oh gosh, it depends on the weather. Yeah. But I took it over our football field, mm -hmm. um, and it took. Let's we'll see. It was really windy that day, and I only had like ten minutes. Yeah, that's not bad. It's not terrible, but yeah. you know, you're you're still running in. <laughs> I want to get more vi I want to get more video, yeah. and so yeah, I, I'm very interested in, in getting into more video. But yeah. like you said, it's something that's going to take some time. Mm -hmm. And, and the way the video is just progressing, it's just, it's crazy to think. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, the reality is, like, in my own journey, like, the five-year plan, it's like, if I get as good as these guys are now, in five years, they're going to be five years ahead. Oh, man. You know, it's, and, yeah, it's crazy. and not only that, there's, I don't think we've ever really grappled with what happens when there are thousands of really, really good video people right like and that's the reality I mean that's the reality of uh, I think I think it's always been there um, you grew up in Salina or mm -hmm. not yeah so Salina is still small enough that you can be like the guy who does X yeah right <laughs> with the internet I think we all have to grapple with the notion that we're not worldwide and we're yeah. not anybody you know like, yeah. <laughs> like we're, there's all like a big like we all have to grapple with this sense of like you're not going to be the guy of anything yeah. which is fine um you just have to you, just, you have to be careful not to compare yourself to others and focus on comparing yourself to who you were yesterday and that's what i do with the with my video work is like like there are people I can name that are like my heroes. I, 
Brandon Lee is just incredible. Just does this amazing stuff. And if I compare myself to him, like it'd be like me comparing myself to Steph Curry, you know, <laughs> basketball. Like I'm just not, and and I'll never get there, you know. And that's the thing also with Brandon Lee is like you can watch Brandon Lee's stuff and you can reverse engineer it and you can say like, okay, I know how he got that shot. And then you try to go get that shot and it's like me trying to be Steph Curry. Yeah. You know, and it's like, okay, I reverse engineered Steph Curry's mechanics, but I still can't shoot like Steph Curry. Yeah. <laughs> and the crazy thing is, is that you can kind of work your way into being that good. Yeah. Uh, but like you said, then where are they at? You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's a constant influx of you know improving and getting better yeah. and, and there's just it's a it's a good time for that as far mm -hmm. as learning and getting better, and things. Get better but it's hard when you when you're interested in so many different things you, you gotta manage your time and, yeah and do things around yeah time. i mean wait, i can't imagine like where you're at like <laughs> trying to be a great football coach and a great teacher you know and a great dad yeah oh yeah that's all that. great husband and I, I need to make sure that i throw that in there as well yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's just, it's hard. a tough time. Well, I, I don't want to take any more of your time, but I, I really appreciate talking. I could, we could have talked all day long. Yeah. I don't want to take a ton of your time because I know that you're kind of transitioning into, yeah. into summertime. And so I appreciate your time. And, yeah, that was great talking. We'll to get you. back and talk yeah. again sometime soon. I'm sure I'll see you around.